Thank you for joining us for another podcast of Risen Fellowship. Over the last few weeks, we've been studying through the 12 minor prophets. And I want to just go over a little bit of background things before we start today's study. The minor prophets are not minor in the sense of being less important than the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. Their messages are just as important in God's program of prophecy. Bible students and scholars call them minor prophets basically because of the brevity of their writings and their ministries, which by no means after you study the book of Zechariah will you believe it to be brief or simple. But there are some unifying themes that I believe helps us understand about all the prophets. The prophets assert that God has spoken through them and that God chose Israel for a special covenant relationship, but that the majority of Israel had sinned against God and his standards for their relationship together. And the prophets were also warning the people of God that judgment would come and that judgment would eradicate the sin that was found in God's people. But the prophets also promised that there would be a renewal following the day of judgment, not just for the judgment that came upon Israel in past history, but it would go well beyond that to the coming day that will bring history, history as we know it to a close. And God then will restore all of his creation. And as we get into the minor prophets, let me say this. The minor prophets are not just history to be studied. It's not just about God's people of the Old Testament. The minor prophets are for everyone, even us today. And they call each one of us to be able to examine ourselves to, and cause us to repentance of our sin and cause us to obey the obedience to God's word and to hold on to the future hope that God has provided for us. Now, we've already looked at Hosea, the first of the 12 minor prophets as you go through the Bible. And we see that his message and his ministry grew out of a personal heartbreak in his own family. Joel, the second one, his ministry and message centered around a natural calamity, and that was an invasion of the plague of locusts. And Joel saw an immediate judgment of God coming upon the land, and that was the, the physical locusts themselves. But Joel saw beyond that to an ultimate judgment that God would bring, and that was the day of the Lord. In our last podcast, we looked at Amos, the third of the minor prophets, and he was a sheep herder from uh, Judah. But God called him to go into the northern kingdom of Israel and to prophesy against them. So now that brings us to the fourth of the minor prophets, and that is the prophet named uh, Abad uh, Abadiah. Now to appreciate the message of this book, which is obviously the shortest of the Old Testament. It's the only book in the Old Testament that only has one chapter. But you have to return all the way to the beginning book of the Bible, Genesis, and look in chapter 25 to discover the, the roots, the basis of the prophet's message there. But when you get to Genesis chapter 25, you find where Isaac, God's promised son, the long-awaited son of Abraham, and his wife, Rebekah, had twin boys. And that was Esau and Jacob. Now the struggle between these two brothers actually began while they were in the womb. And that struggle continued throughout their lifetime and even uh, followed on through to their descendants. And first we see that as these boys were growing up, Esau sells his birthright, that privileged position of the firstborn son to his younger brother Jacob for just a bowl of stew after he'd come in from being uh, hunting all day and being uh, famished and very, very hungry. He sold his birthright. Uh, Esau was that man's man. 
And he was more concerned about the things of the world than he was about spiritual things. And in the last verse of Genesis 25, it tells us that Esau despised his, birth, despised his birthright, giving it away. And he would later claim that Jacob, his younger brother, even cheated him out of it. Now, the second major conflict and struggle that we see is found in Genesis chapter 27, where Jacob, with his mother's help, deceives their father, Isaac, who's old and can barely see. And, and Jacob cheated, deceived him out of the blessing that was due to the firstborn. And when Esau realizes what Jacob has done to him, he vowed that after his father died, he would kill his own brother. Rebecca, the mother, discovers Esau plans and she gets Isaac to send Jacob away to her relatives over 500 miles away from there for his protection. But while Jacob is gone and Esau is there at home, God blesses both Jacob in the distant country and also Esau. And from those two boys come two nations. From Esau comes Edom, the king of Edom, which is the Edomites. And through Jacob, of course, uh, is uh, the Israelites. And after Jacob returns with all the wealth that God has given him with his wives and his children, the two brothers make amends, but they separate from one another. Esau and his descendants move uh, to the far south and east of the uh, Dead Sea into the mountainous country. And that's where they establish what's known as the Edomite kingdom. And it's called Idumea in the New Testament. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, the Edomites had basically been enemies uh, with the Israelites since the time of the Exodus. For the Edomites would not let Israel pass through their land when they were trying to make their way through the wilderness to the promised land. And according to 2 Kings verse 3, the king of Edom actually helped Judah one time attack, put an attack on the Moabites, but later joined, uh, the, the king of Edom joined with the Ammonites and the Moabites to attack Judah. And later the Edomites themselves attacked Judah and carried away uh, some captives. And then they even supported Babylon as Babylon was attacking and destroying Jerusalem uh, and invaded the kingdom of Judah. Because of all this, God calls Obadiah to announce judgment on Edom for both their pride and their mistreatment of Israel. Now, the prophecy deals with these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, and with the two nations, Edom and Israel. And it presents in these short uh, 21 verses, it presents a twofold message. The twofold message is this. God's vengeance upon Edom in verses 1 through 16 and then God's victory for Jacob in verses 17 through 21. Now, Obadiah had heard the report basically through Jeremiah because the scholars believe that Obadiah and Jeremiah were contemporaries. And Obadiah had probably heard through Jeremiah's prophecy that God was going to avenge Israel and destroy Edom. And I know a lot of people that I've heard talk about, they say they just can't believe in the God of the Bible because of the way uh, He destroys people and brings about the wars and everything. Why would God destroy the kingdom of Edom? It's because of her sins. And Obadiah is listing them out. There's seven major sins that brings God's judgment upon the Edomites. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, it's about their pride. They lived high in the mountains and they felt that there was no kingdom and no army that could come and invade them and conquer them. And I have a, a great little story about this because uh, verse 4 was very uh, instrumental in, in my life, growing, uh, bringing my daughters, raising my daughters. My wife and I had a period of time where we were teaching our daughters to memorize Scripture. And there was four of us with the two daughters in our family. 
And so each week we would take turns and a family member would come and say, this is the verse we're going to memorize. So I would do one verse, my wife would do one verse, and then my daughter Danielle, and then my daughter Angela. I can't remember for sure which one it was. I believe it was my oldest daughter, Danielle, came to our table that night. and We all had our little cards that we were going to write it down. We said, okay, Danielle, what's the verse for tonight? And she said, Obadiah 4. And I remember looking at it and saying, okay, what does Obadiah 4 say? And so we started writing this on the, uh, on the cards and we were learning from the New Century Version. And Danielle said, uh, though you fly high like the eagle and you make your nest among the stars, I will bring you down from there says the Lord. And I went, aha. Uh -huh. And I looked at her and I said, okay, now, Danielle, how is that going to help us live our lives uh, for God today? And none of us could know, but we went ahead and memorized that scripture. But that was one of the verses that Obadiah was instructed by God to write out for them and, and, and to say and proclaim in this message because of their pride, judgment was going to come. The second was their confederacy. Verse seven, they were joining with other nations to oppress their own cousins, uh, the uh, people of Judah, and the capital of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then there was violence in verse 10. They were doing absolutely nothing to help Jerusalem, and they were actually cheering on the other nations that were attacking them. And this almost sounds a lot like the Good Samaritan parable that Jesus taught, how the priest and the Levite saw the man that was beat up and left on the road for dead, and although they did not raise a hand to hurt that man, they didn't raise a hand to help him either. And, and when we do nothing to help those who are in trouble, we actually share in the crime. And that's what God is saying. Because of the violence that the Edomites had done against their cousins, uh, the people of Judah, he was going to uh, judge them. And then there was rejoicing in verse 12. I mean, they should have been weeping over their relatives' calamity, but they were actually rejoicing over and jeering at them. And then in verse 13, we find them looting the, the city of Jerusalem. They actually went in after other people had conquered it, and they robbed the city of its wealth. And even though they got away with it at that time, God saw and God remembered. <clears throat> and then the sixth sin was hindering the Jews from escaping in verse 14 and said, instead of assisting uh, their, their cousins, the Jews, uh, they literally blocked their way. And they even, if they didn't kill them on their own, they turned them over to the Babylonians. And then the last of the seven sins was a drunken celebration in verse 16. It says that like the Edomites, they threw this like huge Super Bowl party celebrating that Jerusalem had been defeated. But you know what? God was promising the Edomites, what you're celebrating of what's happened to the Jews is going to happen to you in your very own country. So that's God's vengeance upon Edom. But now, with that one little word in verse 17 that says, but God begins to explain the victory that he has for Jacob. And this is a huge turning point because God promises that even though Judah has been uh, captured in Jerusalem has been destroyed, that God is going to deliver them one day. He's going to cleanse Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and restore the house of Jacob, but He would not restore the house of Esau, the Edomites. There was going to come a day that God promised that Judah would return and possess their possessions, their land, their temple, their city, and their kingdom. And even though today, as we see this, Israel doesn't fully possess all those things, according to the Bible, Jesus Christ is going to return one day. And when He does, 
He's going to give Israel back all of her possessions so that she may enjoy them for the glory of God. And, and the, the message of Obadiah ends with these words, these last words of the prophecy says, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So God is promising victory for Judah and He's going to bring His vengeance upon Edom. But you have to dig a little deeper if you're going to be able to see what this book reveals about the full spiritual message that is involved toward us today. Esau and Jacob represent much more than just two brothers and two nations that lived a long time ago. They represent opposing forces. The flesh versus the spirit. You see, Esau was a good-looking man. He was healthy. He was active. He was outgoing, athletic. While Jacob really was a homebody. I mean, and he's full of deceit and selfishness. And so if you had the two boys standing in front of him and you were to choose between the two brothers, nine times out of ten, you would probably choose Esau because of the way he looked. But God, in this instant for history, chose Jacob, not only for history, but for eternity. Uh, throughout the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament, we see God referring to Himself as the God of Jacob, not the God of Esau. And this is by God's grace and only by His grace because salvation is not by merit. It's not anything that Jacob did to receive God's favor. It was all by God's grace and God's grace alone. And God used Jacob to become the father of the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes, to whom God gave His covenant and His promises to Jacob and his descendants, not Esau and his sons. And Jacob represents the child of God. Just as if you, if you've believed in Christ, today you're a child of God. You're chosen by God's grace, not by who you are, not because of what you've done, but by God's grace. And just like Jacob, often those of us today who are chosen by God's grace live our life just like Jacob did, often failing and often sinning. But ultimately, we will be gaining the inheritance that God has for us. In his life, even in Jacob, we see the struggle between the flesh and the Spirit. And in Galatians, Paul writes about the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we want to live our life in such a way to turn away from the things of the flesh and to be able to live with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such of those things, there is no law because these are the things that come to us by God's grace. And Esau... He pictures the flesh, attractive, powerful, proud, and rebellious. And he always seems to be on the winning side. Yet God has pronounced judgment upon the flesh, and one day that judgment will fall. Esau, who was proud and rebellious, the Edomites, they laughed at Jerusalem when she fell to Babylon. But just five years following that, Edom herself would also fall to the Babylonians. And ask the question, where are, is Edom today? They don't exist. The world boasts of its accomplishments. Just like the Edomites said, man, you, we fly high like the eagle. We make our nest among the stars and no one can bring us down from here. We boast about the things we do in the flesh all day long. But one day, all flesh will fall before Jesus Christ in victory. If you want to get a glimpse of that, go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And look in chapter 19 and read chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, which describes that fall of the flesh. The struggle between Esau and Jacob, between the flesh and the spirit, 
runs throughout all of the Bible. Now, I said that that kingdom of Edom ceased to exist, but raised up in its place was a place called Idumea. And the Herods of the New Testament were from Idumea. And one of the reasons why the, the Jews, the devout Jews, despised Herod being their king was because they didn't consider him to be a Jew at all. He came from uh, the Idumea, the Edomites. And Herod the Great, we see the struggle of the flesh. He killed all the babies born in Bethlehem that were two years old and less because the wise men had told him that the king of the Jews had been born there. And Herod the Great wanted to do everything he could to preserve his place in the palace in the flesh of ruling over Judea. Now his son Herod Antipas is the one that in Matthew chapter 14 tells us had John the Baptist beheaded. And then Herod's grandson, Herod Agrippa I, killed James, the brother of John, to the two disciples, two disciples that Jesus first called. And you find about that martyrdom of John in Acts chapter 12. And we carry that even into today. The struggle between the Israelis and the Arabs today is simply a continuation of that same battle that started in Genesis chapter 25 between Esau and Jacob. It's the flesh versus the spirit. It's pride versus submission. It's man's way versus God's way. And that struggle is going to go on until Christ returns and establishes His kingdom. And so for the message for today that we hear from Obadiah rings as loud and clear today as it did in the days that Obadiah ministered. Jesus Christ, God who became flesh, He emptied Himself of being God and He became flesh just like our sinful flesh and blood. And he did that for one purpose, to die on the cross for our sins, not for his. He lived his life without sin, but he was willing to allow his flesh to be crucified because when he would be raised from the dead, he could set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And so we can crucify our flesh, not by nailing ourselves to a tree, but by having faith in Jesus Christ and God's grace that comes through Jesus Christ, who He is as a person and what He did and performed in His work. And when He died on the cross, some of the last words that He said is, it is finished. The work for the salvation of lost sinners was completed upon the cross. It's actually in the Greek. It's a Greek word that says to telestai, and it means the debt is paid in full. So all the debt of our flesh being sinful flesh, separated from God, at enemies with God. We can be at peace with God through faith and through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's why Paul could later write in his book to the Galatians when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Didn't mean that he would literally at that point hung himself on a tree. But by faith, he was trusting God's grace that came to him through the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So I hope and pray that this struggle that's going on in your life, that we know that something's wrong, our life is broken, and that struggle that's going on in your life, I pray that you won't continue to struggle in the flesh, but you will be able to allow your eyes to be open to the things of the Spirit, to the Spirit of God coming to earth, 
in flesh and blood as a babe born in Bethlehem, lived a sinless life. And he walked himself into Jerusalem to present himself as a lamb worthy to be slain for our sins. And he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And if you can believe that, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, if you believe that, that, that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Then you have faith that God will raise you from being dead in your trespasses to remain alive in Christ. And that's not just a future alive, but that's eternity begins the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now in the last podcast, I'd like to end with a blessing. And, and I used some lyrics of a song of a young man uh, I listened to many years ago for the first time, and his name is Wayne Kerr. And I would challenge you just, if you want to hear some really good music, uh, get on your music uh, library however you can, and just type in Wayne Kerr Band and listen to some of his songs. But this is a song he wrote. It's very uh, meaningful to me because he wrote this as my wife and I were waiting for our first two grandbabies to be born. And this song is titled, My Prayer for You. Now he did this first in about 2002, but I saw where he has uh, redid this song like in 2011 or 2013. It's called My Prayer for You. And here's some of the, the words. And this is my blessing upon you. And my prayer for you is that you could have joy like you've never known. Peace and a happy home. Time to be all alone. This is my prayer. My prayer for you. And hope for a better day. Love, because it's the only way. Grandkids, when you're old and gray, this is my prayer. My prayer for you. And he ends this song with, I hope that you can step into the ocean at least twice a year. And hear the love of a child whisper in your ear. And that God would be the center of everything you do. This is my prayer. My prayer for you. And borrowing from Wayne Kerr, the lyrics that he wrote, that is my prayer for you. May God bless you and you have a great day. And if you have any questions or comments you want to make about this podcast or any of the others, please just email me at mike at risen, and that's spelled R-I-Z-E-N dot church, and I will get them and respond to you as quickly as possible. Thank you and have a good day.